You're listening to Been There, Done That, an original podcast series produced by the Quantum Economic Development Consortium, or QEDC, featuring leading voices from among QEDC members in the quantum industry. I'm Celia Mertzbacher, Executive Director of QEDC. Our guest today is Jen Savada, President of Sandbox AQ's global public sector, where she focuses on government issues at the nexus of quantum and AI to help solve problems that are not possible with classical computing today. Prior to her position at Sandbox AQ, she was the Chief Futures Officer and Senior Vice President and General Manager for the intelligence community startup Mission Tech Solutions, which was acquired by Avantis Federal in November 2020. Jen is also Chairwoman of the Board of Directors for the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, is a member of the Board of Directors for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and is a Strategic Advisor to Bluestone Investment Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thanks, Celia. I'm happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation today. Let's jump right into it. Tell us about Sandbox AQ. What's the nature of the business and what's your plan for growing revenue? Yeah, so Sandbox AQ is an exciting startup that is really focused on the nexus between quantum information science and artificial intelligence and trying to figure out how we enable both to be better through looking at all different types of use cases from quantum sensing, quantum secure communications, as well as simulation and optimization to simulate quantum computers and quantum interactions with classical hardware. And the question on how we're looking to grow revenue is really to focus on four main product areas. And within those product areas, sell both to the commercial space as well as into the public sector. Great. We'll get back a little bit later to those two markets. But Sandbox AQ is a spin-out of Alphabet. What was the motivation for taking the company out from Google's quantum business? Yeah, so interestingly enough, we were a part of the main part of Alphabet. And we were originally called Sergey Sandbox because Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders of Google, had us as this, what is next related to quantum that's not quantum computers? What can we do today with the technology that's available that can bridge the gap between what we have with classical computers and what is coming with quantum computers. And there were a couple of different main reasons why we spun out of Alphabet. One was we needed to be able to grow much more quickly and in both numbers and the amount of money that we could raise and spend in order to invest in this technology. The second thing was is that we knew that we needed to be cloud agnostic. We needed to be able to work with all the different cloud companies, whether it is Amazon, AWS, Azure version of the cloud, or even Oracle, because different customers use different clouds. And we also needed to be able to work openly with the U.S. federal government, international governments, as well as commercial partners. Really interesting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to your current position at Sandbox AQ and in the quantum industry? Yeah, so interestingly enough, I was at Avances Federal, which was a really interesting company that had acquired Mission Tech Solutions, as you had mentioned in the introduction. While I was there, I was approached by a friend of mine who said, hey, can you help out this group of people? Didn't really tell me who they were. And they're really trying to figure out how to work in the federal space, how to work with the U.S. federal government. Most of the people who were there had only done commercial selling previously or working even on use cases that were interesting to the commercial markets. So I said, sure, I'm happy to help. It was something that I had been a part of and had done for the majority of my life and was really interested in what this new team was doing. 
as soon as I started working with them, they realized that they needed to have more expertise on their team in order to really work with the public sector because it is such a different animal from the commercial markets. And so I signed an NDA and they told me very quickly that they were going to be spinning out of Alphabet, but I couldn't tell anybody because it was going to be a, a stealth mode type of spin out. And I interviewed with them and then ended up joining their team inside of Alphabet before we spun out and helped to build the public sector strategy pipeline for growth, as well as really what we needed to do to advance what we were doing in the public sector space. Great. That's an interesting path. With your experience in multiple startups and as an investment advisor, I think you're in a great position to give some thoughts on some of the characteristics of a successful startup. Yeah, I think there's a couple that a lot of people talk about, but what I see a lot in Sandbox is a really great team that is focused on driving change and making positive change, not just the type of change where it's to sell another ad or to do something that has already been done, but trying to make that revolutionary change that hasn't been, been done yet. I also think understanding the markets, whether it's the public sector or the commercial market, knowing who your customers could be, what their pain points are, and how to get after them. And then finally, understanding that things aren't going to be done right away, that you have to be patient, that you have to understand how to grow in a measured manner, but still making progress towards achieving those product goals and customer needs. So as a company goes from the earliest stages, the real startup phase, to being a business, are there common milestones or phases of growth that typically happen to go from an infant to a toddler to a uh, grown-up? Yeah, and I'll talk about this from a public sector perspective, and it, it's very similar from a commercial perspective. I think one of the first key things is your first contract. That first win of somebody validating that what you have is something that they want. And that really helps to not only let your investors know that there's a market, it lets the people in the company know that the work that they're doing is meaningful not just to them because they're interested and invested in the technology, but meaningful to those that want to use it in the real world rather than in a research and development phase. And it also signals that there's the potential for more. And we often don't want to stay stagnant. We want to continue to grow and continue to expand and continue to make an impact. So that's the first one is getting that first contract. The second one, I think, is growing beyond that initial team that really spun out of a larger company to create a startup or the two co-founders that created the startup and hired maybe three or four good friends. When you get out of the friend of the friend network and you start hiring people who are professionals in the business as well as in the technology and the product side of things and to professionalize the organization and the company is the next step and the next phase of this. And then after that, once we move past sort of those two first phases, it's then into the recurring revenue. How do you create the ability to have recurring revenue and not just a one-off contract and maintain the customers that you have and continue to grow those customers? That all sounds very reasonable, <laughs> but there's been some risks along the way. Are there sort of common risks that our audience might learn about from your experience when launching a startup? One of the, the risks I see is staying early in things that you may or may not need. People like the idea of having all the technology in the world that might make their lives easier. 
But in reality, technology can sometimes cost more than the value that it's giving, especially early on in a company, whether it's a, a CRM or whether it's some sort of sales tool or hiring a consulting firm or bringing in a database that has a whole bunch of people's contact information in it. Sometimes you just need to beat your feet and meet your customers where they are and really try to build those relationships one-on-one. -on -one. The second thing I would say is hiring too quickly. Oftentimes we have this hiring plan in our minds. I'm going to hire this person, then I'm going to hire this type of a person, and these are the types of people that I think I need. Oftentimes, as many people say, your plan never survives the first step of what you've done. I'll give you an example. I hired my director of business development as the first hire, and I thought I was going to hire a couple other people. But what I soon realized is that I actually needed to hire a different type of person based on how we were growing and the types of customers who were showing interest. And so if I would have gone out immediately and hired the first five people who I thought I was going to hire, I would have missed an opportunity to show the customer that I listened to them and understood their needs. And so not only just hiring different people, but also hiring too many people because burn rates and how quickly you're spending your money is something that people need to be aware of because money doesn't last forever, especially when you're still in the research and development phase. And understanding how much money you are actually spending on a weekly and monthly basis is just as important as hiring the best of the engineers, researchers, developers, and uh, salespeople that you need. That's a great point. And I think that there's so much focus on technology at a deep tech company. You can't really underestimate the importance of the people. And it's a huge cost, of course. And I sometimes talk to people who make the other point that they felt like they waited too long to bring somebody on board so they could delegate out some of the work. So there's a balance there that's really critical to strike. And I, th I think that's really worth highlighting. Let's go back to talking a little bit about Sandbox and the vision for the company and what inspired you to join a quantum company. You must have had lots of opportunities perhaps come along the way. What was distinct about Sandbox and, and the quantum ecosystem or sector? Yeah, so one of the big things that drew me to Sandbox was the team. The team that was developed and built from a very early stage at Sandbox was a team that had a vision for making the world a better place in any way that they possibly could. And to not think about from the beginning about revenue or sales or really how do we continue to grow and grow, it was how do we make the technology that we have so special and so impactful that people will just want it. And by nature of that, we'll reap the benefits from it, but that's not our ultimate goal. That was one of the things that drew me to it. The other one was being on the cutting edge of technology and understanding that what we're doing can be done today. Oftentimes when we talk about quantum technology, people think of quantum computers and they think of what's available well, maybe 20 years from now or 30 years from now, maybe recently with new recent announcements, it might be even closer than that. But we often forget that quantum technology has been around for a very long time, decades hundreds of years based on transistors and MRIs and lasers and atomic clocks and many other things. And so being able to be the person who can talk about the technology and talk to people about that this is something that you can use today to make a huge impact was something that I liked to do. After spending 25 years in the military and thinking about how do we make an impact and how do we protect our national security, I saw the use cases across 
quantum for that, as well as in the commercial sector. I'd like to dig in a little bit more on those markets and learn about or share with the audience how you identified the market for these technologies. Was it a demand signal from people that you were talking to? Obviously, it was a bit of a process, maybe even during the transition from being part of Alphabet to spinning out. What steps were taken first to identify and then to validate the demand for some of the products that you're developing? So it was a different process for almost every one of our products. And I'll talk about a couple of them just to give you an example. So for the post-quantum cryptography security suite that we're developing, we really looked at what was going on in the cryptographic management space. How were people monitoring and assessing what was on their systems, whether it was their networks, their APIs, their file systems? And then how were they planning to remediate that in order to get to post-quantum cryptography? The way that we looked at this was that there were a lot of different regulations and guidance that were coming out from the U.S. federal government. And we often know that when the U.S. federal government mandates something, the entire federal government has to do it. But then the regulated industries end up having to also comply, whether it is the financial networks or critical infrastructure or hospitals and other organizations that have data about people. And... Through that, we assessed what the total addressable market could be and will end up more than likely be for post-quantum cryptography and cryptographic management. From our quantum navigation capability, where we're using quantum sensors and artificial intelligence in order to navigate without using GPS, that was an idea that one of our team members had who really didn't have a quantum background He had an MBA degree and was working in Google Cloud at the time and was someone who came to Alphabet and to the Sandbox team as a part-time person until he was able to join us full-time. And it was like a back-in-the-napkin idea where he said, you know what, wouldn't it be cool if... And he started doing research and started pulling people together who he thought might be able to help him with this. And we went from an idea on a napkin in about the September, October, November 2021 timeframe to a prototype within six months. And from there, we heard and saw that alternative position navigation and timing was a critical issue for the US military, international governments, as well as commercial airlines in order to maintain safety of flight for aircraft to have navigation for surface vessels and subsurface vessels, and then enable the global aviation and navigation communities to be able to have augmented navigation when GPS was spoofed or jammed. And so just from those two, they're different unique stories about how they were all addressed and how we created them and how we really built from within these unique products and capabilities. I hope you saved the napkin and framed it and put it on the wall. (laughs) That's a great story. I want to go back to the comment that you made about seeing these regulations that might emerge or that are emerging and how those presented a business opportunity in a way. Obviously, you watched those. Are there even steps that are taken to provide input to the regulatory process? Are you involved with the setting of the regulations? I know in some fields, that's kind of part of the business development almost. Yeah, we are actually involved heavily in providing input because we have such experts at Sandbox AQ regarding post-quantum cryptography, cryptographic management, the PhDs in cryptography who understand what this means, 
have been really instrumental in many different things. We're part of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence and the post-quantum cryptography standard setting that NIST is currently doing. We were one of the original 12 companies that were selected. We also acquired CryptoSense, which was uh, one of the 12 also. And so the two of us combined together have had a lot of impact in that organizational body. We have also helped the members of Congress who were putting together the National Cybersecurity Preparedness Act and identifying what needed to happen, where it needed to happen, and things like how does the U.S. government budget for something like this? And then with all of the national security memos, we were asked to provide input and guidance as well based on our expertise and understanding not only of post-colonial cryptography and cryptographic management, but also zero trust. Great. I'd like to talk a little bit, because it's top of mind, of course, for pretty much every startup about funding and investment. And my understanding is that Sandbox AQ is fortunate to have significant backing from Google. But based on your past experience, perhaps, what advice can you give to others that are seeking investment in emerging tech? What's the due diligence that a founder should do before partnering with an investor? Any tips that you can offer? Yeah. So one thing I want to say is we actually don't have any investment from Google. People don't believe that, but we don't. We took external investment from large institutional investors, such as T. Rowe Price, and then family funds and high-wealth individuals, such as Eric Schmidt, who's the chair of our board, Mark Benihoff, who is the CEO of Salesforce. And then we looked at other types of more niche investors in venture capital, which is where you're going from this conversation, like InQtel and Perkway and Section 32 and many others. So some of the things that we did at Sandbox and we've done, I've done other places and, and have seen in other places is really think about how you want your investors to engage with you as a company and as a leadership team on the company. How much influence do you want them to have on your product development, the markets that you're able to sell into, as well as the speed, pace, and technology advancements that you make? Many times with pure venture capital, it's a trade-off between the amount of time that they want to return on investment versus the amount of time that it takes to really develop your technology. And one of the reasons why we did the investment strategy that we did at Sandbox is because we knew that quantum technology in particular was going to have a much longer timeline than more, more traditional technologies such as software development, and that the traditional two to three year return that venture capital usually wants would be a five to seven year return. So we had to have those conversations with our investors that they had to be patient and that they had to understand that we were going to be developing technologies that would be game changing, but it was going to be more incremental than out the door, the traditional hockey stick. And so having those conversations up front to set expectations, to set the roadmaps for what you're going to be developing, and then understanding what you give away by how much money you take and the terms of the investment. So you mentioned product development. How do you manage innovation within the company? You mentioned some stories about ideas that were brought forward, for example, from the top where you're sitting. Is there a management strategy about innovation? Innovation is one of those things that happens within a company, and it can happen anywhere in a company. So one of the strategies that we have is to allow everybody to have a voice in something that they might think could either be a feature or be a, a new avenue that we can approach, and then assessing whether or not it's really in the right and left limits of where we should be. 
For example, in our post-quantum cryptography team, we actually have a research and development team where they look to see what is the cutting edge of cryptography? How do we use that cutting edge technology to inform our product roadmaps, to enhance our product roadmaps, and also to look at different sectors that we should be possibly adding into our security suite in the future. We also have hired and brought on a number of residents and postdocs and many others who are come into Sandbox and they bring their new research that they're doing at their university or their follow-on project that they want to do. And it's a two-way street. We bring them into a company where they take a break from their postdocs so that they can get some real-world experience developing products and take that back to their postdoc when they continue their research. But in return, they're bringing cutting-edge research from top-tier professors into Sandbox where they can share and we can see where the technology is going. These days, of course, we're all used to working remotely. As you bring these teams together, how important is it for people to have the opportunity to rub elbows in person, in an office? How distributed is the workforce at Sandbox? How do you balance those two sides of the talent and team management? Yeah, so Sandbox is a totally remote company. We're fully remote. However, we do have hubs of people just where they naturally have congregated or, for example, a lot of the public sectors in the Washington, D.C. area. A lot of the people who spun out of Alphabet are in the Palo Alto area. We acquired the company in Paris, so we have a, a big team in Paris, France. But then we have people who are onesie twosies all around the globe. And what we've done to create a more cohesive and collaborative team is we've enabled teams to have what we call collaboration budgets, where they can come together as either their entire team or leadership teams or cross-functional teams and meet in person to talk about the things that are impacting them, looking ahead to see what's on the horizon from a sales and product development perspective. And then we also get together as a company once a year so that we can meet all the new people, we can build those relationships and continue to foster those close-knit connections that you need in order to create trust and really to accelerate growth. I think that marketing is an area that a lot of founders maybe don't have a lot of experience in. So let's turn a little bit to how Sandbox thinks about marketing, how you differentiate what you're doing. You talked a little bit about that, I think, up front from any competitors and how to establish a strong market position going forward. Yeah. So one of the big things that we think about for marketing is that marketing for us is a lot of education. We realize that a lot of people globally don't have a background in quantum technology. And so we need to be able to speak at a level that your grandmother could understand or your five-year-old could understand so that people understand the impact the technology can have, the different use cases that are applicable to the technology, and that you can use it today. So what we have done is we have done a, a cross-cutting look at marketing where we write blog posts that are really technical. So for those technical PhDs who need to understand from a technology perspective what we're doing, we also write blog posts for the business professional, the CIO, the CTO, the CXO, we'll just say, or those people that are looking to bring new technology into their company. We also write things that enable 
people who've never had access to this technology before to really understand it. For example, one of the things that's sort of an extension of our marketing is that I teach a class now on quantum information science and national security at Georgetown. The class never existed, but we knew that it was important for national security professionals to understand quantum just as they understand AI. And so being at the forefront of teaching, in addition to the forefront of selling, is just as important for us. In addition to all of those blogs and other things, we have webinars where we bring experts from across the field in to talk about what's going on, as well as attend conferences and give presentations, and then just little snippets that we'll do on LinkedIn or other social media avenues just to inform people what's going on at Sandbox. And podcasts. Yes, and podcasts. Yes, love the podcasts. There's a lot of realization in the industry, the quantum sector, that there's quite a lot of hype out there. And that's bringing attention, which is great. But there are also expectations. And that naturally leads to maybe some cycles, some ups and downs in terms of maybe investment. There's other factors, of course, economic and so on. How does Soundbox try to manage that and plan or prepare for a possible quantum winter or slowdown of some sort? I think that a quantum winter is not as likely as people think it is. And I think the reason why is that people are starting to see the impact that quantum can have today. For example, we have a, a contract with the U.S. Air Force where we're looking at quantum navigation capabilities. And people are excited. They now realize that this isn't something that's five years away this or 10 years away, that this is something that we can work on today and continue to grow and develop and make more mature. The same thing with post-quantum cryptography. Maybe it's quantum adjacent and because there's nothing really quantum in post-quantum cryptography, but it's preparing for that quantum computer that's coming, as well as making sure that your cryptography that you currently have secures your systems. And then from a, a simulation and optimization perspective, being able to simulate at the quantum molecule level, subatomic level with quantum principles, that we can now affect and impact drug discovery, battery development, material science, and look at ways to do this much more quickly at potentially less cost is really exciting for people. And we also are seeing from a quantum computer perspective that almost every day it feels like there's a new announcement about a company that has created some new milestone for their roadmap, or they've got quantum supremacy in one more thing or a different thing. And people are feeling like there is information that is coming out regularly enough that it's not something that is as foreign as it used to be. And I think sometimes technology goes into the winter because people don't understand it and they disregard it while still the research and development continues. But now that we have use cases where people see it from an operational perspective, it bridges that gap between research and development and the traditional operational use and distribution. We're getting near the end of our time, but I wanted to give you a chance to give some advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. What would you tell someone who wants to start a company or is just in the process of starting a company in the quantum space? Are there resources, networks, or communities that you recommend they seek out? Of course, I'm going to say QEDC. Because QEDC has a wonderful network of people who understand what's going on in this space. They also know how to connect people together. And you do an amazing job bringing really great insights and talking to Congress about what needs to happen, but also know the ecosystem very well. So I think understanding the ecosystem, 
understanding who the players are in the ecosystem, and then just talking to people. As an entrepreneur, you need to be able to ask for help and realize that you can't do it all alone. And especially in the quantum space, we all work together because we know that this is a technology that has the ability to change the world in so many ways and bring positive impact. And so One More Company is another great addition. And in addition to QEDC, there are so many conferences that you can attend. There are events that that happen regularly. And then even things like dinners that people get together just spontaneously across the community to talk about what's on their mind. As an entrepreneur, it's a, an ability to really become a part of the community and be trusted in that community. Yeah, I think that's all great advice. Some technologists are more introverted than extroverted, and you've got to get out and really connect with the people who are going to be your customers, your suppliers, your collaborators. And I agree, even though there are some very big companies like Google and others who are in this space, they're all a startup inside. And so there's a real community and willingness to share. And I, I think that's a characteristic of the ecosystem and of QEDC as well. So this podcast is part of our Quantum Business 101 program. And I really appreciate you spending time with us today, sharing some of your insights. Thanks to everyone for listening to Been There, Done That. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with leading voices from among QEDC members in the quantum industry. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 